Good afternoon, everyone. It's good to see all of you. I'm Judy Cooper. I'm coordinator of public programs here at the Pratt. I wanted to make a couple of uh, announcements about upcoming programs. Um, you'll find all of our November, December um, calendar listings here in our new newsletter. Uh, on November 1st, Tuesday, November 1st, we're going to have a screening of the film Gasland. And the uh, filmmaker, Josh Fox, will be here that evening, so you'll have a chance to meet him and talk with him. And that will be upstairs in our auditorium. We will be opening a fabulous um, new exhibition down in the main hall of downstairs on Wednesday. It's called Pride and Passion. The It's about the Negro Leagues, and it's um, it's based on the permanent exhibit that's in the National Baseball Hall of Fame in Cooperstown. And, and this brochure lists all of the wonderful public programs that we're going to be having uh, starting next weekend, Saturday and Sunday, and then throughout November. The exhibit will be here through December 6, I think. So please pick those up before you leave. Um, this afternoon, we're pleased to welcome Trip Evans, whose new biography of, well, it's, it's a year old, so it's not real, real new, but his new biography of Grant Wood um, has been out at least for this past year. Grant Wood is best known as for his American Gothic painting of 1930 and as one of the leaders of regionalism. Uh, in his biography of Grant Wood, which was published last year, Tripp Evans explores the contradictions between Wood's folksy public image as America's painter and the realities of his European training, his sophisticated use of art historical sources, his complex family relationships, and his closeted homosexuality. Evans received the 2010 Marfield Prize, a national award for arts writing from the Arts Club of Washington for the Grant Wood biography. Tripp Evans graduated from the University of Virginia and he received his um, master's and doctorate in art history from Yale University. He currently serves as a Heuser professor, is that right? I meant to ask you. I meant to ask you before how to pronounce it. The Heuser professor of art history at Wheaton College in Massachusetts. He specializes in American art and culture of the 19th and early 20th centuries. He is the author of Romancing the Maya, Mexican Antiquity in the American Imagination, 1820 to 1915. Um, in the bio that appears on Tripp's website, he writes, and I quote, biography, whether of nations, institutions, or individuals, is my favorite genre, end quote. And this afternoon, we're delighted that he's here at, in Baltimore and at the Pratt Library to talk about his award-winning book on Grant Wood. Welcome to the Pratt. Thank you very much. Thanks to, to Judy and everyone here at the library uh, and to, to Janet Heller for getting the wheels turning to, to bring me here. I really appreciate it. Uh, it's, it's wonderful to hear. As, as, as Judy mentioned, the book came out just about a year ago. And I've had the real privilege over this past year of uh, being able to visit a lot of really wonderful places that support writers. Um, and I can't tell you how sustaining that has been um, for me uh, as a writer uh, to be in places that not only encourage love of books, but community around books. Um, these kinds of moments, and in fact, that's why you know my favorite part of uh, any uh, any reading that I do, of course, is, is the discussion and questions afterwards. So please, I encourage discussion um, from you all. After I've uh, done a, a couple of short readings related to a little theme I'll, I'll develop today. Um, I was also delighted to see that a former high school friend of mine, Jennifer Griffin, was here uh, last Sunday for this burning land. I don't know if any of you all saw that, but uh, I was delighted to see that my old pal Jennifer uh, was here just a week before me. Uh, this project, uh, this biography uh, of Grant Wood, for me, arose around um, a central paradox 
Um, as I'll talk about in just a moment, I mean, I teach American art history and architectural history and have done so for 15 years at Wheaton College. But one of the things that really intrigued me about Grant Wood was the fact that American Gothic is uh, bar none, you know, the, the most recognized painting in American art. It is better known than any other uh, painting ever done before or since. And yet Grant Wood himself is one of the least known of our American painters. Uh, in the book I talk about this being almost a kind of uh, like the metaphor of the, the picture of Dorian Gray, but if you picture that in reverse, uh, so that in this case it's the, the picture uh, that has remained kind of very public and sort of changeless, whereas the real sort of flesh and blood person behind it uh, has been really hidden from view. And I really wanted to bring those two together uh, and see if I could explore uh, who this person was behind this iconic painting um, and behind many works that were, if not as well known as American Gothic, certainly uh, well known to a, a, a very wide public in the 1930s. So this afternoon, I, I'll start first by talking about how I came to write this book, you know, leading out from that central paradox, uh, and then talk a little bit about how American Gothic became as iconic as it did. I've got two very short readings today. One that gives you a little, you know, just a taste of what the painting sort of meant privately to Wood. And then a, a, another short reading in which we can see the ways in which this painting uh, kind of took on a life of its own that certainly Wood himself never could have foreseen uh, when it came out. And it, and it changed his life from that point forward. Uh, and as I said, lastly, I, I would love to... Um, you know, have have a discussion with you all about uh, about the the work. I teach Wood within uh, the period of American regionalism. Anybody who's taken an American art history survey course, that's usually where Grant Wood gets uh, sort of pigeonholed. Uh, American regionalism is always talked about as a movement from the 1930s that involves um, always the, the great three, uh, Grant Wood, Thomas Hart Benton, and John Stuart Curry are always seen as the, the kind of triumvirate of American regionalism. I was always struck, no matter how many years I taught Grant Wood, and before I really began this uh, investigation, by how different Wood seemed from the other two painters in this group. Uh, there are odd distortions in his paintings, um, anachronistic elements, uh, misfired gazes. American Gothic is a great example where you have two figures who are looking in slightly different directions. Uh, there are frightening and funny um, and sometimes, you know, kind of coy elements in his paintings that, that you don't immediately sort of register consciously. And then after you look at his paintings for a little while, they begin to either make you giggle or shiver or uh, question what it is that you're looking at. So I'd always wondered uh, what it was about Wood Sitters or about his subjects that set him apart in this way. And that was another thing that I wanted to, to uh, explore his seemingly kind of transparent, very sunny scenes, especially his landscapes, for me were always a bit too sunny. There was always something sort of uh, insects creeping in the bushes, you know, that kind of feeling when you see them. See them. So my search to, to look uh, for information about Wood uh, for what was originally just going to be an article that I'd planned to write about, the portrait that he'd done of his mother in 1929, uh, began with a 1944 biography uh, by Daryl Garwood um, called Artist in, uh, Artist in Iowa. Uh, it was the first biography ever uh, written about uh, uh, Grant Wood. And the odd thing is that it was also the last. Uh, it was written two years after Wood's death, uh, in, in 1940, uh, Wood died in 1942, uh, and from that point forward we have utter silence in terms of biography. Uh, this was actually the first biography of Wood since that time. Uh, that is not to say that there weren't wonderful art historians working on Wood's work and life. Uh, you have uh, Wanda Korn, James Dennis, and others. But Wood's biography always seemed to be kind of the third rail uh, in any studies of his life. People sort of remained very focused on the paintings themselves, giving you very little information about the man himself. And the reason for this is Wood's sister, Nan. Nan Wood Graham, was her married name, uh, was uh, the female model for American Gothic and uh, probably uh, the person who was closest to Wood throughout his life. Uh, she survived her brother by nearly half a century. He dies in 1942. 
She becomes the executor of his estate. She does not die until 1990. Uh, and in that period, she stopped no less than seven would-be biographers of her brother and was very proud of that fact. Uh, and I believe that really by the 1990s, a lot of scholars probably had gotten the, the false impression that there was no there there that there was, no, uh, there was no story really to be had and that he was every bit as kind of two-dimensional and kind of simple as she portrayed him to be. Um, Nan was really most responsible for shaping Wood's kind of persona and legacy after he died. So her image was of a farmer painter, Wood called himself this uh, during his own lifetime, of a small town boy who hated cities, uh, a childlike personality who was untrained self-taught and uncorrupted by uh, you know, the ways of Europe or bohemian culture. Uh, and also that he was a brother who was simply too devoted to his mother and sister for romance, that uh, he was a, a sort of shy, childlike bachelor figure. The reality, the minute you sort of scratch beneath the surface of Wood's life and, and persona, uh, includes some rather startling uh, elements uh, in terms of, of his personality and who he was. To begin with, Wood never farmed. He left the family farm at age 10 and grew up in Cedar Rapids, uh, Iowa. Uh, he was classically trained at the University of Iowa, at the Art Institute of Chicago, and for an 18-month stint in Paris in the 1920s, he was enrolled at the prestigious Academy Julien. We are not talking about an untrained, unsophisticated artist, but someone who knew very well about academic standards before creating sort of his own style. He was also a figure uh, who, who chafed at small towns and who was actually, uh, early on in his life, an enormous fan of H.L. Mencken's, uh, the sage of Baltimore. Uh, he read Mencken's columns that were syndicated from the Baltimore Sun uh, with uh, a real sort of uh, keenness in the 1920s and used to quote Mencken. In fact, he mentions Mencken a lot in the 1920s as being one of uh, the figures who really had inspired his desire to leave the Midwest behind for Paris. Uh, this was really where he was hoping to establish himself in the 1920s. In addition to this, not a farmer, you know, not uh, necessarily a small town booster, classically trained. He was also closeted. And this appears to have been known to many of his contemporaries, uh, but was certainly, I think, the point of greatest contention for Nan. This was the thing about which she was most sensitive. And in fact, to most interviewers uh, in her lifetime, one of the first things she would say was, you know, my, my brother was an artist, but he wasn't a sissy. Almost as if sort of defending him in advance of any claims that might come too close. So Nan's image was Wood's too, to a certain degree. Wood used this persona in his own lifetime as a kind of camouflage. In fact, he once famously told an interviewer, I have never done anything or been anywhere the least bit exciting. Um, my editor wanted to use this as the starting quote on the flap of the book, and I thought, I don't know if that's really the way that we want to draw people in by telling them that uh, the subject himself considered himself to be the most boring person who had ever lived. Uh, nothing could be further from the truth. Uh, what really did surprise me, though, was the extent to which um, his being closeted was known to his contemporaries, seemed to be something that everyone sort of sort of knew in town, um, and that that was really the, the sort of secrecy around that was much more uh, kind of Nan's doing after his death. Um, I was also surprised by Wood's family relationships, um, which had a profound effect on how he developed as a painter and where he decided to, um, uh, to come back and settle, and also his ambivalent feelings about his region. As I mentioned before, as a great fan of H.L. Mencken's, uh, he had a real sense of distrust about small towns and about the Midwest early on, even though it was a place that he dearly loved as well. Um, so it was a very complicated relationship. So, in creating this biography, I had those three strands always kind of in mind. Wood's, uh, Wood's family relationships, his connection to his region, and his, his private and romantic relationships, which did happen sort of off, off stage, and we sort of hear echoes of them through uh, uh, his career. He has uh, a very visible public side a very elusive private side. And, and my goal was to really try to reintegrate these two in the biography and to explore where his biography and his work intersect. 
um, no one, no you know, sort of self-respecting art historian sees uh, an artist and his or her work in full lockstep, right? Your paintings don't tell you everything you need to know about an artist. But there are certainly really illuminating ways in which you can begin to see um, Wood's work and his life intersecting in very interesting ways. So the reason for taking on this project, aside from being intrigued by this artist and this phenomenon of uh, you know, Wood's great fame on the one hand and his kind of inscrutability on the other, uh, was first to resurrect his reputation. I really believe that Wood is a far more important painter than he has been allowed to be uh, since his own death. This is true, I think, even to this day when you uh, go out to Iowa, which still claims him as sort of their you know, capital F, capital P, first painter. This is, this is their guy. Um, and my sort of message out to Iowa was he's, you know, he's bigger than Iowa and you should embrace that. I mean, he's, he's not just a regional figure. Um, he is a very important American painter. Uh, secondly, I'd like to remove Wood kind of from a political context. He's, he's become since his death and largely through Nan's work, uh, kind of a poster boy for, you know, conservative social values, a kind of an aggressive sense of patriotism. Uh, in truth, he had very little interest in politics. And there's also, you know, a huge gap between who he really was and who he is believed to have been, right? And so that divide was something that was very interesting to me. So beginning with, you know, kind of who was he, it's most appropriate to start with thinking about his family. And nobody casts a, a longer shadow in Wood's life than his father. Merville Wood uh, was this incredibly stern, pious, Quaker farmer. He describes his father in his unfinished autobiography uh, as being something like an Old Testament god. Uh, in fact, he said, my father was more god than father to me. These sort of frightening pronouncements, frequent punishments, often corporal. Uh, and his father's uh, profound distrust really of any form of kind of fiction or art making as well. In fact, Wood tells a famous story of having to walk miles to a neighboring farm to return uh, a copy of Grimm's fairy tales that he'd borrowed from a classmate, his father telling him that fiction, even children's fiction, fairy tales, um, were sinful in the sense that they promoted things that were not true. This affects Wood's career profoundly later on when we see fiction becoming such an important part of the way that he dealt with American history. Uh, his father was really also the figure between uh, Wood and his art making. Uh, his distrust of fiction lent uh, also to a distrust of art making, which was seen as somehow kind of inherently sinful. And Wood talks about his first studio, in quotation marks, being underneath the family uh, kitchen table. His mother supported him in his art making early on. And he claims in this way that's sort of nostalgic, but it's heartbreaking to read, that his first studio uh, was underneath the table with the red checkered tablecloth that his mother used to hide him under the table so that no one would see him under their drawing. Uh, and he says, uh, I'm going to have to paraphrase the quote, I don't have it sitting right in front of me, but uh, he said that uh, from, from my studio, from the arched openings of the red checkered tablecloth, I could look out at the world of adults. There was this sense that that was his sanctuary, that that was the place where he could be safe and, and create uh, artwork. And in fact, that red checkered tablecloth used kind of a Citizen Kane reference, becomes his rosebud. You see that red checkered tablecloth showing up in interior city designs um, throughout his life. Um, it shows up in paintings. It shows up in the fabric that the characters wear in some of his paintings. And when you know what to look for, you can you begin to pick it out. And that's what I mean when I say that there's um, so much to be gained from understanding this man as he was. Um, in terms of understanding what those kind of odd inclusions sometimes are in his paintings. So in 1901, the event happens that forever changes Wood's life and his family's life. Wood is 10 years old in 1901, and his father dies very suddenly one afternoon. The way that it was told was that his father went into uh, the family dining area right next to Wood's first studio. I mean, it's almost like you know you couldn't have written a you know a better sort of play for this. You know, his father passes the table, looks out the window to check on the weather, and drops dead from a heart attack. In fact, the the uh, headline in the Anamosa Eureka simply read across the top of it, um, dropped dead <laughs> with, a, with a period. Uh, Francis Merville Wood of Jackson Township is no more. 
And it felt just that uh, abrupt for the Wood family. Uh, it precipitated their move from Anamosa, where they had you know, a family farm, to Cedar Rapids, which was a rapidly industrializing city, a very different kind of place. Uh, and for Wood, it seems to have forever stilled a kind of internal clock. Uh, here was the figure who he both loved and feared, this figure who uh, he wanted to be desperately, wanted to sort of be like, uh, and yet uh, who never quite had that kind of approval from his father for the things that he was particularly drawn to. And you see this particularly in Wood's mature career in two very kind of um, salient ways. One is in his painting. When Wood comes back from his final trip to Europe, um, and makes the sort of famous decision to finally settle back in Iowa and to paint Iowa scenery and Iowa subjects, the Iowa that he's painting is not Iowa from the 1930s so much as it is Iowa from the 1890s. He's painting an Iowa where his father is still alive. And in fact, insistently, even in commissions where he's taking on contemporary subjects, he removes examples of kind of contemporary life and sort of throws the scene always back into a sort of horse-drawn carriage sort of idea of the Iowa of his childhood. Same thing happens with his autobiography. When Wood is commissioned in 1935 to write his autobiography by Doubleday, he takes on the project enthusiastically, describes lovingly his time on the farm with his family. He gets to the point of his father's funeral, and just following the funeral, he stops mid-paragraph. He never got further than that and had seven more years. He doesn't die until 1942 um, to complete the project, and it's as if you know it was a roadblock that he could never quite get past. Uh, he never paints his father. Uh, you may think, it, you know, obviously his father was no longer living. That didn't really stop Wood from painting many of his dead relatives uh, in some of his paintings of Iowa. He never paints his father, and in fact, it's one of his dying wishes when he, he's dying in 1942 from, from liver cancer. Um, his greatest wish is to be able to uh, finally paint his father's portrait. I argue in the book that Merville Wood shows up in painting after painting after painting in his mature period, and nowhere more obviously than in American Gothic. Uh, his father is not the model for the male figure in the painting. Uh, Wood's dentist, Byron McKeeby, um, holds that honor. But everything we know about McKeeby flies in the face of the figure you see in that painting. Byron McKeeby was a shy, gentle, sweet guy who was sort of afraid of his own shadow. Um, was not a farmer, um, and we see Merville's characteristics sort of behind a mask of this, this figure who was sort of standing in for him. And this happens again and again in Wood's work. So as I said, I argue in the book that Merville uh, is really the, the ghost that haunts his painting. He's the figure that uh, you know, he owes a debt to for the rest of his life that he can never repay. Finally, he becomes a fine artist. And it's really only because of this kind of fortuitous death of his father when, uh, when he's 10 years old. So from that point forward, the family relationships that really define Wood's life are with his sister and with his mother, Nan uh, and Hattie. Uh, Nan referred to this very tight-knit group as we three. Uh, they not only shared a house, they shared a single room uh, until Wood was well into his 40s. Um, they were, uh, they sort of finished each other's sentences. Everyone sort of saw them as a little clique that would sort of go around town. And this even after Wood had become famous and was actually doing well enough, certainly, to have um, uh, moved out of the carriage house where they lived. The carriage house where Wood lived from 1925 to 1935, it's really the, the decade of uh, his most prolific work. Um, and American Gothic is right in the middle of that decade from 1930. Uh, was a carriage house behind a funeral home. It's a very Adams family setup. Uh, it was hearses on the first floor, and on the second floor was where uh, Hattie and Nan and Wood lived in a room that is smaller than this. Uh, it had little sort of eaves going out in either direction. He painted there. He also supported community theater there. They had a little stage set up, um, and he would do stage sets for them. Mama and Nan and he, it was sort of like the, you know, Goldilocks and the Three Bears. They had, there was a sort of like pulled out, you know, beds that came out of the walls and sort of lined up uh, together. 
the entrance to this, uh, you know, this garage for hearses would, in his typical kind of dark sense of humor, decided to emphasize even further by making the front door to his studio a 19th century coffin lid. So, you know, when you went into his studio, you know, you sort of opened up this creaky, you know, cartoon, you know, uh, uh, coffin lid, you would come in. And his sister and his mother in these years uh, served multiple roles. They were his muses. They show up often in his paintings in the late 20s and certainly into the 30s. And they also serve sort of dual roles for him within the family. Given the absence of Merville Wood, uh, and Nan had been just an infant when her father died, he really is both father and brother to Nan. Uh, and for Hattie's part, given the absence of his father, he is really sort of both companion and son. Uh, Truth is that both of these women ended up really taking care of Wood. He was sort of their child in a strange sense. Uh, and it sort of led to that sort of childlike persona um, that Nan really sort of cultivated about her brother. So this is, uh, so this is the family setup. How does Iowa fit in? Um, because I think Wood has a very complicated relationship to his state as well as to his family. In the 1920s, Wood begins a sort of back and forth between uh, uh, Cedar Rapids and Paris and some other parts in Europe as well. As I said before, he himself said that he was inspired by Mencken's call uh, to leave you know, the Babbity Midwest um, for all of these bohemian centers uh, in Europe. So Wood's great uh, hope in this period, in the 1920s, was to become recognized as a great impressionist painter. In fact, those who know his mature work are often surprised by what an accomplished impressionist he was. Beautiful, very loose paintings that he was doing in the 1920s. In 1928, he makes a final trip to Munich. He's overseeing the manufacture of some stained glass windows that he had designed for a veterans hall in Cedar Rapids. And when he comes back, he begins experimenting with a new style. He does a portrait of his mother called Woman with Plants, um, which is very sort of uh, crisp and clean and inspired by the northern Renaissance painters that he had seen in Germany when he sort of has this epiphany in 1928, that's how I want to paint. Or, or at least, that's how I want to go home and try. Uh, so what happens is he does this portrait of his mother, reluctantly sells it to the Cedar Rapids Museum of Art. He, he refused to sell it, and then his mother said, ah, sell it, we need the money. Uh, you can always replace it. He doesn't replace it, but within the year, he begins his work on American Gothic, which you know, I argue in, in my work really comes out of that painting of his mother. He wants his mother to pose for American Gothic. She balks at the idea. Um, she was a little superstitious about posing with someone who seemed about the sort of age and bearing of her dead husband in front of a house that looked suspiciously like the one that Wood had grown up in. So he substitutes his sister, which made the painting all the creepier and even much more magnetic because she's the wrong age. Um, people have incessantly wondered, you know, who these people are. She's wearing his mother's clothing, and even the plants from Hattie's portrait appear in the background on the back steps. So it's, it's his way of kind of recreating that portrait of his mother. He is an unknown guy at this point. He's doing well in state fairs, really. Uh, he certainly does not consider himself a national figure or a painter of American history or Americana. This is a private and kind of deeply weird, fractured portrait of his family that hits the public with uh, a kind of intensity that he absolutely uh, could never have been prepared for. In fact, he spent the rest of his life kind of scratching his head about why American Gothic had taken off the way that it did. It leads to a kind of devil's bargain for him, right? He tries this new style. He receives uh, you know, international praise for this painting. He becomes famous like that. It never happened before or since in American art. And he really could never go back to Europe at that point. He sort of renounced Europe um, and decided to remain permanently. Best decision he could have made from the standpoint of his art because his work continues to have that kind of wonderful psychological intensity when he returns to, to Iowa. But he was also trapped in a certain sense. He couldn't go uh, uh, back to Paris. And he did a pastel that, that really sort of tells you everything about his feelings. I, I would project it for you. I'll just have to describe it to you. It's called Return from Bohemia, which was going to be the name for his autobiography about his renunciation of Paris and Bohemia. 
in it, you can see Woods sitting in an easel looking out at the viewer while everyone you know, from the village stands behind him. You've never seen a more glum looking group of people or Wood looking out at you like, oh no. <laughs> you know, there's this kind of seriousness to it that I think tells us a lot about sort of how he felt about returning. As much as he did love Iowa, of course, as I said, I mean, it was a, it was a bit like his relationship with his family. So the story of Wood's life then, you know, kind of hinges on three major turning points. You've got this 1901 moment where he is suddenly uh, removed from the family farm. His father is gone. You have 1930 where he has this sort of sudden fame and becomes forever kind of planted in the Midwest. 1935 marks the last and probably equally important turning point in his life. In 1935, Nan, who is married at this point, finally leaves the magic circle of we three. She moves to Albuquerque with her husband, Ed. Hattie enters into her final uh, illness. It is clear that Hattie is not long for this world, and it really begins to kind of panic Wood. She is kind of the foundation of his life. Uh, so in March of 1935, Wood takes the surprising step that really kind of um, took everyone by surprise in Cedar Rapids and announced that he was marrying a woman that not many people had ever met before and certainly had surprised people who referred to him politely as our capital B bachelor artist. Uh, he marries a woman who's many years his senior, white-haired and kind of matronly. She was a grandmother uh, when they married and looked an awful lot like Hattie. Uh, so I have to say, this it was a marriage that really had a lot of people sort of shaking their heads. And Hattie herself dies within about six weeks of the marriage. Uh, Wood's new wife, uh, Sarah Maxson Wood, uh, further sort of, uh, you know, kind of changes Wood's world by insisting that they move to Iowa City, that they leave this uh, carriage house and move to Iowa City where his life really took on um, an entirely new kind of cast, and one for which he really was not prepared. Um, as Sarah's husband, um, as sort of man of the house, he had this beautiful new house in Iowa City that I think the scale, the very scale of it, I think kind of undid him. Um, and he stops painting for about three years. I mean, he hits his longest dry spell. And for someone who really only had about you know, an 11-year mature period, I mean, this is a major dry spell. If that were not enough, Doubleday Company uh, hires him to write his autobiography in that year, and they insist that he have, uh, if not a ghost writer, a writer to kind of help him out. Enter Park Reinard, um, the young man who kind of became the love of Wood's life, and Wood insists that he move in with him and Sarah. So here was you know, Wood in this giant new house with this new wife that he barely knew, Park had moved in. Wood is kind of mooning about the house, following Park's every step. Uh, and as Sarah later wrote about it, living in that house in Iowa City was a bit like living on the top of a volcano. Um, they were some rather strained years. So I want to move now then from talking about these kind of contours of Wood's life and uh, read you these two short uh, passages about the private and the public dimensions of this very famous painting. Uh, and uh, then I'll, I'll end with a very brief sort of citation uh, from Sarah herself, and I'll explain sort of how I came upon Wood's ex-wife's papers. They were only married for three years. Park stayed until the end. <laughs> All right, so this is the this is the beginning of what is um, a rather uh, sort of long analysis, as you might imagine, in this book on American Gothic. I'll just read you the first little bit. Wood's inspiration for American Gothic dates to the spring of 1930, when he discovered a small Victorian-era farmhouse on a trip to Eldon, Iowa. Particularly drawn to the house's Gothic window, Wood considered this overscaled feature comically marooned on the facade of this tiny, isolated structure. And I have to tell you, it's a joke that still works. When you drive past this house, it is, this, it is the tiniest little farmhouse with this giant Gothic window. A distant descendant of the great cathedrals Wood had painted in France and Germany, this farmhouse embodied for him all of the admirable and provincial qualities of rural Iowan culture. As he later and rather unflatteringly declared, 
our cardboardy frame houses on Iowa farms are especially suggestive of the Middle West civilization. Even the term for the farmhouse's style, familiar, familiarly known as American Gothic or Carpenter Gothic, seems to have provided Wood with an irresistible contradiction in terms. He loved puns and often invested his titles with uh, plays on language. The stark and colorless faith of the house's presumed 19th century inhabitants, as the painter envisioned them, no more resembled the grandeur of medieval Christianity than the home's upper window recalled the Cathedral of Chartres. Indeed, Wood's initial goal in painting American Gothic had been to create an analogous relationship between the farmhouse and its imagined owners. I simply invented some American Gothic people to stand in front of the house of this type, Wood explained to the Des Moines Register in 1930. Wood's original concept for American Gothic may be easily read in the finished work. We see a Victorian house paired with Victorian types. Yet this setup alone fails to explain the painting's uncanny chill. More than just a send-up of H.L. Mencken's Bible Belt bourgeoisie, it is an eerie and even sinister image. Perhaps the most unsettling element in the painting is the clear misalignment between the sitter's ages, a detail that's inspired endless speculation concerning their relationship. Are we faced with a May-December romance, or a father and a daughter? Wood himself seemed occasionally confused over the issue, yet neither possibility ultimately relieves the viewer's sense of discomfort. Beyond the sitter's age discrepancy, there's also the disturbing quality of their frozen gazes in the aggressive foregrounding of their bodies, a visual confrontation pointedly underscored by the farmer's menacing pitchfork. Between these enigmatic and vaguely threatening figures hovers the Gothic window that first inspired Wood's composition. In its centrality and elevated position, it echoes the strategic placement of mirrors in Northern Renaissance paintings that Wood admired. You often see in Jan van Eyck's work or other painters from this period, a mirror right dead center in the back of a painting. And it's, it's a way to bring you in. And in fact, often as a painter's trick, you actually see the painter himself um, painting the painting in the mirror. In American Gothic, however, Wood's darkened and depthless window effectively shuts us out of his scene, if indeed we could get past that pitchfork. A vanishing point in more than one sense, then, the empty window suggests all the dimensions of the Gothic in its romantic 19th century context. Family secrets and dead bodies haunt this work, and they all enter the painting here. In Wood's personal iconography, the pointed arch held greater resonance and a longer history than any of his other recurring motifs. The first representative, representative marks he'd made as a boy were the arched circles that represented the feathers of his favorite hen. He just drew these arches again and again. His mother was saying, you know, what are you painting? What are you drawing? He'd say, it's my hen. <laughs> she would say, Fine, keep going. Uh, it's abstract. Uh, in the childhood hideaways where he produced such images, moreover, we see the same shape repeated. The arched openings of his kitchen table studio, the pointed gable of the barn's hayloft, and the steep pitch of the Anamosa farmhouse's attic. Added to these early associations is the adult wood's fascination with Gothic doorways, a subject found throughout the artist's Parisian paintings, and one that wholly dominated his 1926 show at the Gallery Carmine in Paris. As the New York Herald noted about this exhibition, doorways and entrances invariably intrigue Wood, and nearly all of the paintings are constructed around that mysterious transition from indoors to outdoors. So for Wood, and I'll end there with my, that's the very sort of tip of the iceberg where I begin to sort of take apart this painting. For Wood, there is no element in his work that is not overdetermined in some way. Yes, he found this uh, Gothic window sort of comical, and he could sort of make a kind of statement about Midwest, mid, mid, excuse me, Midwestern farms with it. But beyond that, it kind of it hooks into an entire inner system um, symbolically for him. And you know, he talks about creating these paintings as a process that he said was more like sweating blood than painting. Um, these were deeply cathartic exercises for him in which he found himself again and again starting with a simple premise. I want to paint a landscape. I want to paint my mother. I want to paint these two Victorian types that always gets away from him. And it gets away from him in really wonderful, wonderful ways. So let me read to you now uh, just a brief section on what critics had to say about this painting when it came out. These are critics who don't know a thing about Wood himself or even necessarily about the people who are portrayed. 
So American Gothic debuted at the Art Institute of Chicago in the fall of 1930, whereas Woman with Plants, his portrait of his mother, which he'd exhibited there the year before, uh, had failed to attract any attention. Uh, the artist's latest entry with the was the universally acknowledged hit of the show, a triumph that derived in no small part from the painting's powerful psychological charge. Given its multi-layered iconography, critics and popular audiences projected a host of different and often conflicting meanings on the painting. Many Iowans who first saw American Gothic were angered by the image, perceiving in it a parody as cruel as it was inaccurate. Citing the archaic character of the figure's clothing and accessories, this is what I'm talking about when we talk about supposed to be a 1930 couple and they have decidedly 19th century clothing and implements. Uh, Mrs. Inez Keck of Washta, Iowa wrote to the Des Moines Register that perhaps the artist has not been in Iowa since he was a little boy. She really, she had nailed it with that. Uh, beyond noting the painting's anachronistic appearance, locals also took exception to the unwholesome nature of the sitter's age discrepancy and frequently marked upon the figure's perceived unattractiveness. To Nan's lasting fury, one Iowan housewife claimed that the female figure in American Gothic resembled nothing so much as the missing link. She hated that. <laughs> What these Iowans perceived as an unjustified attack, of course, Mencken's disciples considered a fitting portrayal of the Babbity Bible Belt mentality that they believed defined the Midwest. American Gothic's figures, of course, do represent primitive and even rather terrible historical throwbacks for the artist, and certainly they recall the rigidity of the world in which he was raised. That he intended to ridicule these figures, however, is doubtful. Uh, he really, I argue that, you know, he loved, he feared but loved his parents, I think, too much to really uh, sort of attack them uh, in this work. In Wood's own day, the notion that American Gothic represented a satire of Midwestern types whether you know, people applauded this or, uh, or not, was less common than the competing claim that it embodied a sincere and patriotic reflection of America. And this is the life it's kind of had from that point forward. In its front page review of the Art Institute's exhibition, the Chicago Evening Post featured a large reproduction of American Gothic under the headline, American Normalcy Displayed an Annual Show. Iowa farm folks hit the highest spot. This is also the key to why American Gothic always works as a parody. Because the parody is always a twist on what you know, conservative values are, are believed to be kind of invested within this painting, right? For its part, the Chicago Daily News proposed that the work's patriotic appeal placed it not only above other works at the 1930 show, but at the forefront of American art, period. American Gothic, the newspaper claimed, was quite simply the finest record of Americana that has ever been painted. Not a bad first review for an unknown person. As one brochure in the exhibition read, American Gothic is interesting because it is entirely of us. So from this point forward, and the parodies are about this too, American Gothic is seen as a mirror for a certain idea of America. For those who perceived a national self-portrait in this work, it was important to distinguish its regional focus from other less American parts of the country. As C.J. Bulliet, the art critic for the Chicago Evening Post, wrote of American Gothic, the biggest kick of the show comes not out of New York or Woodstock or the effete East, or even out of Al Capone's jazzed-up realm, but out of Cedar Rapids, Iowa. Bulliet makes an important distinction here between the painting's rural Midwestern milieu, the source of its powerful kick, and the presumably fey elitist atmosphere of the East Coast or corrupt environment of Chicago. If the success of American Gothic served to sharpen this rural-urban divide, then so, do, so too did perceptions of Wood himself, a view that the New Yorker expressed in no uncertain terms. They said, as a symbol, and this was very perceptive very early on, Wood stands for the corn-fed Middle West against the anemic East. He stands for an independent American art against the colonialism and cosmopolitanism of New York. He is a real man. He's a real American, and he has nothing to do with Paris. He has nothing to do with New York. These are critics who had no idea that he'd spent an entire decade desperately trying to make it uh, in Paris. With work like American Gothic, critics proposed, Wood had single-handedly reversed the tide that had pulled so many of his generation to Paris. The New York Times' Edward Alden Jewell declared the painter had earned his toga virilis for ending Americans' perilous fascination with Impressionism. 
and going on to write, Grant Wood is calling us back to simplicity and even a hardness. Rather pungently, another writer observed that the artist had replaced the vogue for continental affectation with his own Midwestern tang. So he's this sweaty, laboring farmer, all-American, red-blooded American male who's going to save American art from you know, the kind of fey influence of the School of Paris. For Wood, this was both uh, an incredible boon. Suddenly, he was on the map in papers from you know, the west to the east coast to London to Munich. Everyone was writing about this painting and this guy. Uh, and it also had given him an ironclad kind of persona that protected him uh, against accusations about his masculinity, about who he was, about what it meant to be an artist. But it really became that kind of trap for him. He was never able to escape from that point, um, the image of himself as America's painter, even though his paintings continue to show that sort of complicated sense. Now, I'll end with just you know, a, a paragraph and a half uh, from a tremendous discovery that I made very late on in the process of writing the book. When I had finished doing you know, most of the manuscript and was just about to go into copy editing, my editor told me, You've got to write an epilogue. You've got to sort of catch the reader up on what happened to everybody in the book. Wood dies so early, and everyone else in his life lives like for the rest of the 20th century. So she said, just you know, wrap it up and tell us what happened to everyone. The only person I could not find out anything about was Wood's ex-wife, Sarah. They were married in 35. They divorce in 38. The dry spell miraculously <laughs> ends after the marriage. Uh, <clears throat> and he paints one of his all-time greatest paintings, in my uh, opinion, uh, Parson Weems' Fable. But I never knew what happened to her, and people uh, really loathed her. They really thought that she was the reason for his depression in these years, and that she was um, pushy and kind of rude to his friends. So all I was really looking for was an obituary. I had to find out where Sarah died. And through a rabbit hole in the internet, I found something posted from her estate. In, in Washington State, called the bookstore, and I said, you have something posted from the estate of Sarah Maxson. Turns out she was the niece, I think, of General Sherman, so some Civil War buff had put the family genealogy up. And I said, do you know where and when she died? I'm just trying to find out. I said, well, you should talk to Ed Bartholomew. He was her landlord. He's always going around town with this giant sheaf of papers, Sarah's memoirs, Sarah's diaries, the book that Sarah was writing about Grant Wood. We don't know who Sarah was. And the first thing I did was, is he still alive? And you know, can I get out on the next plane? And it was a it was a treasure trove, amazing material from Sarah about the years of their marriage, and also including this tiny little snippet that I'm going to read from, where in the 1950s, a decade after his death, she began her own biography of Wood that she didn't get very far on. Uh, but I think it's very telling the way that she starts it off. It was going to be uh, sympathetic. She remained uh, one of his greatest champions in terms of his art. She too believed that he had not gotten the real credit that he. Deserved for being an important American painter, so Sarah uh, had had a quite had 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 quite a bit to say about Wood, as I discovered. Although she'd always brushed off interviewers' questions concerning the artist, tersely referring to her second marriage as the Grant Wood episode, she appears to have begun a biography of her ex-husband shortly after her move to Orcas Island, just off of the coast of Washington State, uh, in 1958. In this draft, Sarah explains. The odd thing is that there's so little biographical detail about Wood. Who's, few, who's who gives him a few lines, but most of the space is taken up with the listing of his patrons, which I find in itself a peculiar thing. You see, during a certain period of, of his life, I knew him very well. And you get this sort of, this music begins to swell as she sort of warms to her task. Uh, considering the task before her, she continues, Perhaps we should just let him alone. Let him rest on his painting alone, which is what critics did until the biography came out. Uh, on the other hand, it's never done an artist in the long run any great disfavor to know all about him. And look at the, the example she chooses. Take, for example, Oscar Wilde. Oscar Wilde's genius runs just as purely and clearly today as if the world did not know how he spent his last years or the reason that was behind his final degradation. There is some parallel here, as we shall see. 
and she stops. When I say it was a short attempt at a biography, I've just read you the entirety of her uh, beginnings of a biography that never really could have been written in the 1950s. Uh, but I believe that, at least in, in spirit, um, that's exactly what I was trying to attempt with this book, which is to really uh, strip away the, the sainthood from you know, America's painter and see this person as a living, breathing, flesh and blood person who was complicated and uh, had wonderful relationships with the people in his family uh, and beyond that were rather complicated, including one with uh, his assistant, uh, Arnold Pyle, who I was delighted to see has replaced Nan's image on the poster outside the library where American Gothic has been recast with the old guy with the pitchfork. And there's Wood's you know, beautiful you know, young assistant, Arnold Pyle, who uh, he had a real infatuation with in the 1920s, kind of replacing him. Uh, but to take all of that bundle of wonderful, complicated, um, creative energy and sort of see how we can look at these paintings again. And uh, you know, if Sarah were, were alive today, I would uh, have loved to have given my first signed copy to her. So I'll, I'll, I'll end there and turn it over to you all. So thanks very much. Well, there were a couple of different people uh, in Wood's life. Are you talking about Park Renard? Uh, Park Reinard, sometimes some people pronounce it Reinard or Renard, ended up having a very distinguished career in Washington. Um, he began uh, speech writing after Wood's death for Governor Lovelace in Iowa, um, and then ended up on um, working for uh, in the Iowa Senate office here in D.C. He was a kind of a backroom policy broker guy. He ended up he married. Uh, had three children, named his first son, Grant Wood Renard, um, and he, he died in 2000. Um, I still meet people um, who knew Park and talk about what a wonderful uh, guy he was. I, my take on their relationship in the book is that it was um, probably unconsummated and one-sided in the sense that I think Park absolutely knew that Wood hung on his every word. Um, I don't know that it was reciprocated in the same way. And sort of tragically, that's the way I think it often worked out in Wood's life, is that he would take on these kind of young protégés um, who he adored. Um, in some cases, it does seem that there were actual you know, sort of real relationships. There was a young man in Paris who uh, there was an intervention to keep him from bringing this guy back home. Uh, he was in Paris in 1924, meets young Marcel. Um, hatches the plan that Marcel is going to come back and live with him and Mama and Nan in the carriage house, and that Marcel is going to teach French in the Cedar Rapids public school system. And a couple of Iowa businessmen who kind of knew what was what actually had a kind of meeting with him in Paris and said, you may come back, but Marcel has to stay here. Uh, and Wood was uh, heartbroken about it. So we just get little hints about these figures. Yep. Sure. We were both clear from the beginning that we under no circumstances did we want American Gothic on the cover, just because I think that um, the whole point of this book is to try to sort of get past that one image. I did want Parson Weems' Fable for the front. And Parson Weems' Fable, one of the reasons why it's such a great painting is it's, it's the apocryphal story of George Washington and the cherry tree. And you actually see Parson Weems lifting up a curtain in the foreground to show you the scene. And it's the curtain that was Wood's uh, studio divider at the, um, at the carriage house. And it's really Wood as showman kind of pulling back that scene to show you a scene of fiction, um, a sort of made up story that he is celebrating in this. So I thought, boy, what a great image that'll be of you know, sort of pulling back the curtain to reveal. You know. It got very complicated as I was telling this. It was just like, look, nobody who's walking through you know, a bookstore is going to immediately sort of get all of that. She chose, and I think that it was a really wise choice, uh, Death on the Ridge Road for the cover, um, not purely for aesthetic reasons. I think it's a more powerful image for the cover. But it works beautifully because this is painted in that critical 1935 year. So this is painted right after his mother has died. 
uh, right, you know, not long after his marriage, the breakup of We Three, the move to Iowa City. It was a it was a year where Woods life felt like it was completely falling apart. Uh, and it is the it is a really unusual painting. It's one of the very few paintings where you see contemporary um, motifs like the, the cars and this you never see cars like that in his other paintings. And you also never see an action painting in Woods of, you know, it's it's a it's a scene of imminent death. I mean you're seeing this car just about to hit that red truck going around the corner. Um, and to me, it, you know, it's just such a perfect metaphor for 1935 for him. I mean, he is just about to make impact here. It's forever kind of stalled. And also as a kind of metaphor for his life. I mean, this really was sort of the tension that he felt once he became famous forever. I mean, it, that red truck was always just about to hit around the side. And what I didn't mention was that within weeks of American Gothic's spectacular debut, perfect example of how vulnerable he was, Wood was uh, approached by his first blackmailer within two weeks of the Art Institute show. So he was both being sort of heralded around the world and suddenly thinking, everyone is going to know. Um, I'm going to be exposed. A young man approached him. And the story later was that the, the young man was claiming to be his illegitimate son, um, despite the fact that he was about 10 years younger than Wood. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, so for the, for all of those reasons, it seemed like a perfect example of kind of the tension in his life. And I've been on this road. It's a real road right outside where Wood was born. This Ridge Road is um, an incredibly dangerous place. I nearly wrecked my own car trying to get a picture of it as I was going around thinking, I've got to get the shot that shows where the painting was done. But yeah. I don't think so. Uh, I think it, this shows more to me, the way that I write about it, a sense of kind of impending judgment. You can't see the whole thing, but see these cross-shaped uh, uh, telephone poles? There's three. One, two, and then there's another one here. It's, it's Golgotha. It's a crucifixion scene. And you've got the, the heavy rains coming in here also. It's a scene of impending punishment. I don't think self-punishment necessarily, but maybe the fear of exposure or things kind of falling apart. Uh, he did have periods of severe depression. I don't know if any uh, suicide attempts or, or talk amongst folks that were worried about that with him, um, but he was also a very heavy drinker by the end too. So if cancer had not kind of done what in, I mean, things were not looking good for him in the 1940s. In fact, he spent the last 18 months of his life surviving kind of a witch hunt from his department at the University of Iowa that were in a race with Time Magazine to see who could expose his sexuality first. And it was only the intervention of the president of the University of Iowa who said, this has got to stop. Um, stop the investigation. Let's put wood in another department. Let's hush it all up. Um, and that's when he got diagnosed with cancer. In the in the nineteen teens and early twenty before the stock market crash, Wood and his family were grindingly poor. I mean, they uh, there were years that they existed on you know sort of handouts from from friends. In 1930, with the uh, success of American Gothic, Wood himself and his family were financially fine and sort of protected from the worst of the depression. Um, you know, by the mid 30s, he's getting anywhere between ten and fifteen thousand dollars a painting. Um, not doing very many paintings. I mean, he's only doing a couple of year, but he was he was doing okay. Um, because, in fact, someone brought that up in Iowa. They said, well, you make such a big deal about the fact that he and his sister and his mother all shared one room. It was the Depression. A lot of people did that. He said he had an annual income of close to $50,000 a year when he was doing that. But as far as the environment, um, Wood was actually faulted by many of his contemporaries for not addressing the terrible farm strikes um, and poverty amongst sort of farm people in the Midwest. His farm landscapes are always perfectly sunny. The harvest is always coming in. No one's upset. There's no uh, farm strikes. Um, Reflection. 
He is never a, a kind of social painter throughout his, his career. Um, I can think of almost no examples, clear examples. He did do some war bond um, posters at the very end of his life. Uh, so those were sort of his only political things that he did, but that was a commission. Um, but absolutely, he really, he, he didn't, and it was surprising when Jim Dennis came up with an, an explanation about the African-American figures in Parson Weems' fable. You see George Washington, his father, in the foreground, and then an enslaved woman and her son in the, in the far background. Only example in this entire work that he ever included black characters in one of his paintings. So Jim Dennis says, well, he's showing the glowing white of privilege, you know, light of privilege in the foreground, juxtaposed against you know, the lives of the slaves. And I just read it, it just didn't ring true to me because it's, that's not the painter that he was. For him, it was more of a foil of a mother and a son versus a father and a son. There were other ways to sort of read that. But he was never much of a, of a social painter. And I think partly because Wood probably thought the minute he stuck his neck out about anything, he was making himself vulnerable. He, oh, absolutely. And that, that's what that, that quote that I read before was all about when he says, I've never done anything, nothing to see here, <laughs> just going to fade into the woodwork, don't look too closely. Um, because I think that if he did, clearly, um, even his relatively, you know, not very, you know, kind of radical ideas as a teacher were challenged by his department. And the first thing they did was, well, we know how to get him out of here. And that's sort of what led to that. Yeah, and they always knew that they had that trump card to play against him. And he knew it, too. Mm -hmm. uh, in your book, you have a photograph of uh, Grant Wood's dentist who posed for American Gothic. Yep. And I was amazed at how he looked exactly like the painting. So stern. And, and you say he was really a mild, shy, sort of nice person. Right. Yeah, he, the only anger that he showed was the fact that he was portrayed as, as closely as he was. He, poor Dr. McKeeby, spent the rest of his life known as the guy from American Gothic. And that was his obituary in 1950. Um, but mostly a pretty sweet guy. There's an, there's an interesting substitution that he makes there, too, not just portraying the McKeeby model figure as a farmer, which he wasn't, and in front of the, the essentially a house that looked very much like Wood's family farmhouse. But he's wearing Merville's um, glasses. Wood saved his father's eyeglasses like a holy relic. It was like the only thing that he had of his father's that he kept until his death. And so it's significant that he sort of, he sticks those you know, glasses on his model, almost as a way of signaling, not to us, because we wouldn't necessarily know it, but to himself that this is, you know, planting his father kind of in the painting. Was uh, Grant Wood's dentist paid for posing for that picture? I don't think Wood ever paid. Later on because he was so famous? No. Uh, in fact, Wood only got $300 for the painting. <laughs> the Art Institute bought it for $300. And in fact, the jury originally rejected the painting. It was a trustee of the Art Institute of Chicago who kind of got tickled by it and said, I don't know, put it back in. And you know the rest is history. But I don't think he ever paid his models. Is there any account of his experience in Paris about the great he might have Very little. Uh, he was part of a pretty rowdy expat group. The stories you always hear was, you know, we were coming home, you know, uh, you know, drunk or you know, from home from you know. X number of you know mistresses you know that they uh, had sort of around Paris. The story always seems to be that Wood was kind of the, like the shy guy who sort of stayed home, was a little, who was not necessarily, um, you know, sort of participating in the kind of wild expat experience that these other painters were. That doesn't mean necessarily though that he was not having a life apart from one that they knew. Clearly, clearly Marcel came from somewhere, uh, and so you know, right? Well, they were all. Hey, <laughs> Evening in Paris, exactly. Every night at midnight, he got into a car. Um, no, and it's, uh, we know so little about that. Not really. Some of them ended up being, um, you know, sort of well-known illustrators, things like that. Thomas Hart Benton was in Paris, but before he was. So Benton was in Paris in, say, the, the teens. Um, but... Yeah, most of the folks who were there, Marvin Cohn, his best friend, who became a well-known regional painter, but in Iowa. Mostly folks that we wouldn't know about, but who have often had very little to say about what went on um, in Paris. 
uh, or what went on in, in Munich. I, I wonder too sometimes what happened in those years in Munich that led him to, or not years, those, uh, those weeks in Munich that led him to make a permanent break. He comes back from Munich and he says some really unusual things about the experience. He says things to interviewers like, um, well, I spent a lot of years you know, in the, in the mud uh, in places like Paris and Munich, and I came back and I had to be renovated by the fresh Iowa air. Um, I lived for years in Paris, but um, was able to keep my living habits intact. These sort of strange references that have very little to do with painting and sound almost like sort of moral crises that he was either giving into or averting. So, you know, maybe one day we, I will find the diary of someone who was traveling with him in Europe. I mean, I certainly didn't expect to find Sarah's material. And she is, um, she really does not, you know, nothing is, is too kind of private for her to reveal. She, she, very, she makes it very clear that theirs was a platonic marriage. Um, she makes it very clear uh, about Wood's attraction to um, Park Renard, which I had had to just sort of tease out between the lines and figure it out, as well as to her grown... 20-something son who also lived in, moved in with them at one point. It became a very complicated house. But yeah, I wish we knew more about Paris. Yeah, I mean, people remember her as this kind of, you know, crazy, colorful character. Ed Bartholomew, who was my link to Sarah, just died last week. Um, so I, I told his daughter, you know, I'm eternally grateful to, for him kind of resurrecting this incredibly colorful figure. Uh, Jerome Kern uh, uh, kind of discovered her in the teens and put her in Broadway productions. She was a singer. She was an actress. Um, she came from a very wealthy Iowa family and ended life as a house cleaner. She was living on Social Security, cleaning people's vacation rentals in Orcas Island with her little sheaf of papers. She was just sort of typing away about Grant Wood. And, you know, even when I made the call, people still had no idea who she was. Very important. They, you know, the, his, Ed's daughter keeps saying to me, you know, I want you to write a historical fiction novel about Sarah. And I have to say it's very tempting, but not really my genre. <laughs> She uh, she wound up in a in Chicago and then became a kind of ladies' companion to a daughter of a wealthy family, and they had a house in um, in on one of the islands. And when the daughter you know finally married, they let her stay on as a caretaker, and then they sold the house and she kind of stayed put. So, anything else? <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs>